for our message today, this morning. Uh, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. We'll be reading from Exodus and then we'll turn to John chapter 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Now turn with me to John chapter 1, where we will read the, uh, the fulfillment of the Old Testament tabernacle, where God comes to dwell on earth, not in a tent, but in human flesh. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law has given through Moses Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this promise of fulfillment that you came to dwell on earth in your son Jesus. And the promise that uh, for whoever believes in Jesus, you now dwell in us. Thank you for that and the hope that comes with your son Jesus grace and mercy and salvation. Father, be with Pastor Barry this morning as he comes and preaches. May your Holy Spirit rest upon him, and may your Spirit teach us, give us hearts to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been lighting one candle instead of four candles for this Advent season to emphasize very simply a theme of the series through the first chapter of John that Jesus is the light of the world that has come into the darkness. Jesus coming into a world through which also was made by him. Merry Christmas. I, those of you that are visitors this morning, thanks for joining us. And I hope and pray that as you spend time together as families, that you will really experience the, the grace of God in your homes, in your relationships, in your friendships with one another renewing acquaintances with people that often you don't have time to spend with. And I really hope and pray that it will be a blessed season for each and every one of you. If I seem a little excited, it's because I get to preach from four of the most significant words of the whole Bible. The word became flesh. I, it, it's an amazing text. I wish I had a sermon to go with it. But I'm the word became flesh. This is John's nativity scene. <laughs> there's no angels. There's, there's, 
There's no shepherds. There's no Mary and Joseph. There's no manger. It's just, this is John's nativity. This is what he wants us to know about the birth of Christ. The, the word became flesh. You know, there's nativity scenes all over the place. My mom loved nativity scenes. She, if there was a nativity scene, you name it, she had it. She'd go to a craft sale. She'd find something different. Not a porcelain or crocheted or, or you know, uh, pottery, whatever. She, she loved nativity scenes. This is John's nativity scene. And it's, it's, our, it's a good guarantee that we don't over-sentimentalize the idea of the holy family with porcelain dolls. The word became flesh. Those words appear in the text as a shocking surprise. There's no way to prepare for what John has to say about the word that has been previously described in this text who was with God and is God and through whom all things were made and is the light that comes into the world. And now this is what he says. And it's, it's a tremendous and scandalous idea that the word would become flesh. You know, it's, it's worth slowing down and just thinking and dwelling on the significance of those words for a moment. Some of you will spend hours and hours and hours preparing a beautiful Christmas dinner, and you'll sit down and your family will devour it in 10 minutes. It's like, couldn't you just savor it a little bit? Couldn't you just slow down and maybe talk? in between chewing. They prepare beautiful flower beds and people come in and, oh yeah, I guess there was flowers outside. It's Christmas. The Word became flesh. God Almighty entered the same thing that we experience without sin, of course, in the flesh. Is there, do you ever wonder if you can be saved in the flesh? Do you ever, ever, ever have insecurities about, can God really love me? Do you ever wonder, like, is flesh really something that God can adore? God became flesh. And take us back many centuries to a bishop of Alexandria by the name of Athanasius. He was known as Athanasius Contramunda, Athanasius against the world is because he lived in a time where he used, first, he used John 1 in these very words to describe the enfleshment of God. And the bishop that he served under as a young lad lost his life over. And so his, his young servant at one time said, Athanasius, the whole world is against you. And his famous retort was, well then, it is Athanasius against the world. And this is where we get the words that I'm going to use today. The enfleshment of God. The Word became flesh. And this is, this is the way that Asthenasius would describe it. He says, the, the Creator became the creature and yet still the Creator. The one who was formed in a virgin's womb is the one who himself formed all things. The one who is entering creation is the agent of creation. God is about to redeem the world through the very one who made the world. The Word became flesh. It is amazing. 
In fact, those four words summarize the message of the entire book. If you only get those four words out of the Gospel of John, you get exactly what John wants, to, wants you to get through all of the stories, all of the signs, all of the miracles, all of the things that Jesus stands in public places to declare about himself. That I am the Word. I am the enfleshment of God. That's who I am. And John says at the end, chapter 21, they did lots of other things as well in order that you would know that this Jesus is God's one and only Son. Jesus answers the question for us, what are you like, God? And I hope that's one of the most significant questions that you ever ask in your life and that you don't neglect to ask that question. What are you like, God? Take a very, very close look at Jesus. Here's the main point. If you don't take anything else home this morning, this is what I would like you to get. I think it's the main point of the text, John 1, verses 14 through 18. The enfleshment of God. The word was made flesh. There's, there's a proclamation there of something that was new. Of course, the, the, the word wasn't new, but the new reality is that, that God was enfleshed. And there's a proclamation, but then the text moves to a purpose. It doesn't just leave it as a, as a proclamation, as an announcement of a reality. It moves to the purpose to answer the question, so what? God was enfleshed. Who cares? What difference does it make? Why was God enfleshed? And so it, the answer to that is so that we could experience the glory of God. And the word glory is, is really what John expects people to be impacted by through his whole gospel narrative. John only uses the word grace once through the entire book. But he uses the word glory over and over again. It's the glory of God's enfleshment that John expects to impact the people to whom he is writing. That, that, that God enfleshment means that Christianity is not a legal religion, a legal religion that tries to find a way to God. God enfleshment means that it is a glory religion. Christianity is a glory religion that God has come down to flesh, has come down so that we would see his glory. If you don't know anything about glory, then you don't know anything about discipleship. It is the single most significant component of discipleship. Why do I do the things that I do? To experience God's glory, which is grace and truth. That is the substance of glory. Grace and truth. Hey, what, what does the word glory mean? It's an, it's an abstract word. And John, this text doesn't allow us to leave the words grace and truth in the abstract. God is enfleshed so that we would see grace and truth, which is the glory of God. And that all happens through God himself dwelling. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, fulfilling all of the Old Testament instructions of Moses in the law to build me a tabernacle. That's why I had Genesis, Exodus chapter 24, 25, 1 through 9 read earlier. All of that is experienced through the God's immediate proximity of God to us. We get to see God. It's Christmas. God is enfleshed. We get to see God. 
It's amazing. It's gracious. Three words that I'm going to work through to get through this text. The three words are this, proclaim, distinguish, and declare. Proclaim, distinguish, and declare. First of all, John proclaims a new reality. And he distinguishes, secondly, that reality from both John and Moses. There's a distinguishing that goes on. And thirdly, he declares its purpose. Proclaim, distinguish, and declare. The first one is the proclamation of a new reality. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This God enfleshment is a reality proclaimed that has no corresponding reality. There's, there's nothing analogous to it. There is no analogies. There's, there's no similars, similes. There's no, there's no metaphors for God enfleshment. In other words, you, you cannot, after reading, the word becomes flesh. You, you, and you're tempted as preachers. You know, we use similes, we use metaphors all the time. You know, like, tell me what that means. Just, just give, me, give me something that, 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 I can, that I can hang my thoughts on. You cannot begin a sentence after the proclamation of the word becoming flesh with the words, it is like. The reason for that is there, there is nothing like it. It is an absolutely unique proclamation of a reality that is rooted only in the purposes and the will of God. Except there is one, there is, is, is one other event in Scripture of which you can say it is like. Which takes us back to the very beginning of the Scripture in Genesis chapter 1 where we hear these words, let there be over and over again in the created creation of the world god says and let there be a, a declaration that there's there's no explanation for there's nothing analogous to it except that god said so there's no other explanation for light except let there be light and it's that same omnipotent and purposeful will of God that says, let there be flesh, rooted nothing in nothing other than, than the same omnipotence and divine purpose of creation. I read from Isaiah chapter 9 earlier when the service started, and when a son is born, a child is given. Did you notice how that text ended? And the zeal of the Lord will do all of this. Isn't that great? The Lord has a zeal <laughs> and is the reason for all that he does. The reason that there is God in fleshment is because God is zealous to dwell with his people. That's amazing. And John makes it clear that the proclamation of this God in fleshment is a fulfillment of of Old Testament purpose. Now, now this, as I said, this is John's nativity scene. It's a little bit different than the than the way that other gospels like Matthew and, and Luke begin, where there is also words used very, very intentionally, but in all of the gospels there is an intentional declaration and a proclamation of fulfillment. And all of the genealogies and all of the people that are involved in the earlier stories, it has to do with, with fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, of, of lines that connected to Abraham, of the Davidic throne connected to the throne of David, and Jesus shall rule. 
John has that same intentional intentionality of using his words to proclaim something about the hope of God's people that is being fulfilled in this God enfleshment. But his is a little bit different. When I read Exodus 25, you think, well, that's a, that's a strange Christmas text. <laughs> well, this acacia wood and jewels and gems and all that, built me a tabernacle that I might dwell in it. We, the word became flesh and it dwelt among us. Intentionally, words used to declare a fulfillment of Old Testament symbols, Old Testament hope, Old Testament purposes. John says that the word dwelt among us, using that vocabulary of the, of the tabernacle, the place of God's glory, the Shekinah glory. You heard the word Shekinah? It simply means residence. God's glory. Where God is, there is a glory. Where God takes residence, there is a glory. And this enfleshment is the fullness of all that the Old Testament, all, all that Moses prescribed in the law for the makings of the tent. God tented in the midst of them. Enfleshment is God tenting in the midst of us. But there's more. That tabernacling, that, that glory of God was not left in any vague or unsubstantiated kinds of experiences. It was, it was spelled out very, very clearly. What, 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 do you, what do you get when you see God? What did the tabernacle bring near? What, what benefit, what, what profit is a shining tent in the midst of your people? What good is it? What did God purpose through it? What did God hope through it? Well, it's really comforting to have a shining light in the tent. The purpose of the tabernacle is that they would come to understand God's covenant faithfulness to them. And there was two words that are used over and over in the scriptures. And John echoes those words here when he uses the word grace and truth. We have seen his glory. And then that glory is substantiated. That glory is given substance with the words grace and truth. And it's very intentional vocabulary of covenant dealings that God has with his people that reflects to Two Old Testament words that are used over and over, grace and truth. And those two Old Testament words for grace and truth are, are steadfast love for God's grace. The steadfast, enduring love is said love. It refers to the grace that, God, that John is appearing to. And the second word John uses is truth. Truth is understood to be in this sense of something everlasting, something that is eternal. When God says that his word is true, it means that it's never going to go away. It's never going to fail. It's eternal. It's always going to be there. It has to do with God's faithfulness. And that is what the, what the word truth is reflecting of Old Testament hope, God's faithfulness. And those two words are used all through the scriptures to describe the hope of God's people, his steadfast love and his faithfulness. How many of you know the song that comes out of Lamentations 3? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. See, this is what people understood by that shining thing in the tent. Steadfast love 
and faithfulness. That was the significance of it. God's covenant purposes to bring himself close, not to impress them, but to saturate them with steadfast love and faithfulness. Now John says, God has been enfleshed. Not in a tabernacle. God has been enfleshed so that we would know his tabernacling presence and experience his steadfast love and faithfulness. Remember the, in Genesis chapter 24, there's a story of Abraham's servant. And Abraham's servant is sent on, on a mission to find his son Isaac a wife. That wife's name would be Rebekah. But Abraham said to a servant, don't find a wife for my son Isaac here in Canaan. I don't want her to marry Canaanites. Send him to Sweden. No, I'm sorry, that's not right. Send him to... Send him to Mesopotamia, uh, almost as good as Sweden, and to the city of Nahor. And the prayer of Abraham's servant is recorded, O God of steadfast love, show me the way. And he meets this girl at the well, and the, and the girl shows him kindness and brought into the home of this woman. And he realizes that it was the the relatives of his servant Abraham and this is what he says the first time you'll find these words coupled together and then consistently all through the scriptures oh Lord God you to my to my uh, master Abraham are a God of steadfast love and faithfulness Psalm 89 says I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever actually that's true it's exactly what we're going to do I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness. Does your mouth do that? Sing of God's steadfast love and make known his faithfulness? If it does, that's evidence that you understand what God in fleshment is all about. That's just the first word. Uh, the second word is distinguish. And John distinguishes between the word that's made flesh and John the Baptist and Moses. It's only natural that he would do so as unique as enfleshment of God is, that there be no confusion. That John the Baptist was a herald of that grace and Moses was a forerunner of that grace, but the God enfleshment is that word become flesh it's not flesh become word which is a lot of what a lot of religion is based upon today not flesh becoming word divine but word becoming flesh the reference to john is parenthetical that's how it's translated into our english translations just to deal with the grammar where the the verb picks up the subject from the previous verse so Verse 15 is in parenthesis. It emphasizes that John, although John came first in, in life, he was born first, and he came first in ministry, he proclaimed first that he wasn't first. It's another reference to the pre-existing nature of the word that became flesh. He says, don't, don't confuse this with John the Baptist, who... who who came, Jesus came first. And we'll hear more about John the Baptist in our sermon from next week. 
But the distinction with Moses is critical to the whole book. It's critical to our understanding of how to read the Bible, how to read the Old Testament, how to, how to understand the, the distinction between the law and, and, and the gospel. But it's also critical in the, within the book of John. One of the great questions that Jesus would face is, are you greater than our father Moses? We are disciples of Moses. It was Moses that led us. He gave us God's very words. He gave us all of the, the structures that we've built. He gave us instructions for everything. We are disciples of Moses. Are, are you greater than our, than our servant, than our father Moses? And, and the answer to that question, beginning right here and all through the Gospel of John, is a resounding yes. Yes, absolutely. The God in fleshment is superior, is much, much more than Moses. Not opposed to Moses, but more than Moses. Moses brought you the law, which was a very great grace, but no one can be saved through the law. More grace is needed. Jesus never rebuked or mocked the people. He was a gentle savior. Many times, I know he spoke some very harsh words, but on this particular subject, he, he never rebuked or mocked. I think that's actually very significant. He didn't mock the people for their regard of Moses. But he corrected them in their understanding of Moses. And he said in the fifth chapter, if you, if you believed in Moses the way that God intended you to believe, or if you believed Moses in the way that God intended you to listen to Moses and to hear Moses, then, then you'd believe in me because Moses spoke about me. There's the distinction right there. Moses spoke about me. Not to be separated, but a forerunner and a fulfillment. Moses did bring much grace. He delivered you from physical bondage in Egypt. And he brought you out into the wilderness and he, he gave you God's words, not just the 10 words of the law, but, but all of the words of the law that included all the instructions about the tabernacle and as a, as a revelation of God's righteousness and his, his covenant purposes. But Jesus says, I have come, the God in fleshment has come to deliver you, not from material bondage, but from spiritual darkness, from, from actual darkness itself. And not to take you into the wilderness and merely give you the words of God, but, but to give you God himself. Have I said that already? Merry Christmas. God is enfleshed. We get to see God. And it's exactly what Moses prayed for in the 34th chapter. As he's standing there, remember he broke the tablets. He was so angry with the people for the idolatry. And he goes back up onto the mountain. And he, and he has the words of God in his hand, which is a, an, an amazing thing. But he, he says, Lord, I want more. Which is exactly what John proclaiming that we get in Jesus. We get more. But Moses himself prayed the same prayer. I want more. I have, you, I have your words in my hand. But I want to see the speaker. I want to see the one who spoke the words. Isn't that amazing? I mean, Moses prayed for the right thing, right? I want to see your glory. He understood the weight of glory to be the thing that would guide him through the wilderness. He didn't say, Lord, please give me a map. No, Lord, please give me some more chariots. You know, give me some more, give me some more advisors. I want to see your glory which would give him the wisdom and the power and the integrity, but also the other things would 
but only partially give him. So look at verse 16. It says, from his fullness we have received grace upon grace, which is a wonderful thing. I, I'm from the prairies, and not spend much time in the ocean. One of my favorite things to do now is to go to the ocean, particularly over to Euclid, and just watch the waves come in. It's like grace upon grace reminds me of the waves. Like wave upon wave. Like they never stop. Like you never just, like, well, that was a really nice wave. Okay, it must be done now. I'm going to go home. It just, it just keeps coming. Wave upon wave upon wave. That is what God in fleshment is. It's grace upon grace. You never just turn it, okay, it must be done now. It's got to be finished soon. Grace upon grace. It's a marvelous thing. But what does it mean? Exactly. And John goes on to say specifically, this is what I mean. I'm not talking about waves of the sea, actually. That's, that's just buried. I'm not talking about waves of the sea. I'm talking about Moses and Jesus. This is grace upon grace. Look at verse 17. It begins with the word for. So if you ever looked at, at verse 17, I thought, well, I wonder what this means. You know, what's the connection here between the law and, and Moses and grace and truth? Well, it begins with the first word in verse 17, the word for is explaining what grace upon grace means. Moses is a layer of grace, is a wave of grace, because Moses brought the law, and the law revealed the perfect and the righteous character of God, which even today we do not despise. But we can't be saved by it. If we could, then no further grace would be needed. But when Jesus comes, which is exactly what the law anticipated. See, there's nothing contrary to Moses here. There's nothing contradictory to Moses here. It is something that is a fulfillment of Moses. Just as surely as God gave you the law through Moses, and as wonderful of a grace that was, you need more. It's not enough. Just as surely as God gave you the law through Moses, God is now giving you grace and truth through God and fleshman through Jesus. He is the final revelation. He is the definitive revelation. He is the, the further revelation. See, Moses wasn't a plan A that failed. <laughs> Do you believe God has two plans, like plan A and plan B? Do you believe that? Or go find another God who really is God. God has a plan A, and Moses is a part of the plan. A very significant part of the plan. He revealed all of the, the righteous perfections of God to his people. But it wasn't enough. All it does is tell us that we need a Savior. That's why Jesus says if you believed in Moses the way that God intended you to believe in Moses, you'd believe in me. And the law is pointing to me. Moses anticipated the grace and truth that would come through Jesus Christ. It's all part of the same plan. But we have more than Moses gave. Hebrews chapter 3 says Moses was a faithful servant in all of his house. A faithful servant. Never is Moses despised in any of the words of Jesus or the words of the apostles. Third word is purpose. Verse 18 says this. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Verse 18 declares the purpose for God in fleshment. We get to see God. 
the purpose of God in fleshment is the grace most needed. What grace do you need most? I think, well, I could sure use some help with my temper. Or I could sure use some help with my, you name it. <laughs> we need help with it, right? <laughs> that, would be, that would be a great grace. The grace that we need most, that precedes all of those graces, without which none of those graces can be in, in, in a biblically experiential way, is that we need to see God. We need to get to God. The purpose of God in fleshment is that we get to see God. Because his purpose is to, to dwell with us. And the, the word that John uses is actually to, to exegete God, to reveal God. You ever exegete a, a text or something like that? That's what, what God in fleshment does. It, it exegetes God. And if we profess any connection to the God in fleshment, which I hope you do, this is where we fail, where, where evangelical religion fails so often. If we profess any connection to God in fleshment, this is the evidence of it. We see God, and it changes everything. It really does. It changes everything. What do we see when we see God? We see grace and truth. We see steadfast love and faithfulness. We see the things that God, the things that God wants us to grasp. What's the shiny tent for? What's the God enfleshment for? <laughs> it's that the proximity of God would bring the reality of steadfast love and faithfulness into the lives of a flesh that are so deeply marred in relationships that are so deeply affected by the absence of steadfast love and faithfulness. And steadfast love and faithfulness become the explanation for Christian discipleship. It's what creates it and, and sustains it. I'm so glad when I came to faith, there was somebody who had the, the confidence in this very idea, you need to see God that it would actually create a disciple and that it would actually sustain a disciple. You need to see God. You know, when you sit down and say, okay, we're going to disciple you, what do we do? Take out a pen and say, okay, you're going to tell me what to do. You're going to give me a list, right? No. We need to see God. We need to see his steadfast love and faithfulness. What, what are the impulses that lead us in, in discipleship? Some of us have never known an impulse for discipleship outside of shame. You need to be better, man. Do you believe that, that God has completely removed you of all shame? Do you believe that? That you have no shame through the glory of the God and fleshment that bore all of your shame? Then let's not embrace a discipleship that is rooted in shame. You must be better. But rather one that is rooted in in awe, rooted in steadfast love and faithfulness. Why are you so patient? Steadfast love and faithfulness. Why are you so generous all the time? Steadfast love and faithfulness. Why do you forgive? What's the explanation for Joseph forgiving his brothers? I couldn't do that. There's only one explanation, steadfast love, faithfulness. We can't extract 
the grace of God from, from, from God himself and take it like a little, little treasure box that we open. We don't worship grace. We worship the God of grace. And we need to get to God. Our religion needs to get us to God. God in fleshment does get us to God. I'm not disputing the need for practical religion. I am disputing the idea that the knowledge of God isn't practical. You know that it's possible for people to love grace and not really like God? I've done it. It's very inconvenient to have God in close proximity. <laughs> I'd rather the blessings come at, at arm length. God in fleshment is that, is that we actually get to God. You know, we, we're so biblically orthodox and sometimes not biblically experiential. In other words, we can say, with all honesty and orthodoxy, Jesus is the, the, the only way, truth. The way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. That's it. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That's absolute orthodoxy. You know what the next words are? We often leave them out. The only way to the Father. Thomas right away jumps in that, yeah, let's go. God help us from living lives that are often in denial of the implications of what we believe. And may what we believe really be a conviction of the proximity of God in all of his steadfast love and faithfulness through the enfleshment of Jesus Christ. Proverbs 3 says, let steadfast love and faithfulness never forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on your heart. Would you please stand with me? I'm going to read a psalm to close. Praise the Lord. It's Christmas. God is in flesh. We get to see God. Psalm 98 says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. He has done marvelous things, and his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Amen.